Chapter Eleven of Flemington by Violet Jacob. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elin. Chapter Eleven: The Guns of Montrose. When Archie lay and pictured James on the other side of the water, his vision was a true one. But while he saw him on the quay among the sheds and windlasses, he had set him in the wrong place. James stood at the point of the bay formed by the basin of Montrose, at the inner and landward side of the town, not far from the empty fort from which Hall had taken the guns. The sands at his feet were bare, for the tide was out, and the salt, wet smell of the oozing weed blew round him on the faint wind. He was waiting for Ferrier. They had chosen this night, as at this hour the ebbing water would make it possible for the hundred men of Ferrier's regiment to keep clear of the roads and to make their way from Brechin on the secluded shore of the basin. Logi had not been there long when he heard the soft sound of coming feet and the occasional knocking of shoes against stone. As an increasing shadow took shape, he struck his hand twice against his thigh, and the shadow grew still. He struck again, and in another minute Ferrier was beside him. The soldiers who followed halted behind their leader. The two men said little to each other, but moved on side by side, and the small company wound up the rising slope of the shore to the deserted fort and gathered at its foot. James and his friend went on a little way and stood looking east, down the townward shore of the strait, past the huddled houses, massed together at this end of Montrose. The water slid to the sea, and halfway down the long quay in front of them was moored the unrigged bark that held the town guns the four-pounders and six-pounders that had pointed their muzzles for so many years from the fort walls towards the thundering bar. Hall had not concerned himself to bring the vessel into his own immediate neighbourhood, nor even to put a few dozen yards of water between her and the shore. He knew that no organised rebel force existed within nine miles of where she lay, and that the Jacobites among the townsmen could not attempt any hostile movement unaided. He had eighty men on board the venture with him, and from them he had taken a small guard, which was left in charge of the bark. Every two or three days he would send a party from the sloop to patrol the streets of Montrose, and to impress disloyally inclined people. His own investigations of the place had not been great, for, though he went ashore a great deal, it cannot be said that King George's interests were much furthered by his doings when he got there. When Ferrier and Logie had posted a handful of men in the empty fort, they went on towards the bark's moorings, followed by the rest, and leaving a few to guard the mouth of each street that opened on the quay. The whole world was a bed behind the darkened windows and the grim stone walls that brooded like blind faces over the stealthy band passing below. When they reached the spot where the ferry-boat lay that plied between Montrose and the south shore of the strait, two men went down to the landing stage and, detaching her chains, got her ready to push off. Then, with no more delay, the friends pressed on to the main business of their expedition. As they neared the bark, a faint shine forward where her bows pointed seaward suggested that someone on board was waking, so, judging it best to make the attack before an alarm could be given, the two captains ran on with their men, and were climbing over the bulwarks and tumbling onto her deck before Captain Hall's guards who were playing cards round a lantern, had time to collect their senses. The three players sprang to their feet, and one of them sent a loud cry ringing into the darkness before he sprawled senseless, 
with his head laid open by the butt-end of Ferrier's pistol. In this unlooked-for onslaught, that had come upon them as suddenly as the swoop of a squall in a treacherous sea, they struck blindly about, stumbling into the arms of the swarming, unrecognized figures that had poured in on their security out of the peaceful night. James had kicked over the lantern, and the cards lay scattered about underfoot, white spots in the dimness. The bank of cloud was thinning a little round the moon, and the angles of the objects on deck began to be more clearly blocked out. One of the three, who had contrived to wrench himself from his assailant's hold, sprang away and raced towards the after part of the ship, where, with the carelessness of security, he had left his musket. Three successive shots was the signal for help from the venture in case of emergency, and he made a gallant effort to get free, to send this sign of distress across the strait. But he was headed back and overpowered before he could carry out his intention. One of his companions was lying as if dead on the deck, and the other, who had been cajoled to silence by the suggestive caress of a pistol at the back of his ear, was having his arms bound behind him with his own belt. Not a shot had been fired. Except for that one cry from the man who lay so still at their feet, no sound but the scuffling and cursing on the bark disturbed the quiet. Ferrier's men hustled their prisoners below into the cabin, where they were gagged and secured, and left under the charge of a couple of soldiers. No roving citizen troubled the neighborhood at this hour, for the fly-by-nights of Montrose looked farther inland for their entertainment, and the fisherfolk, who were the principal dwellers in the poorhouses skirting the quays, slept sound, and recked little of who might be quarreling out of doors, so long as they lay warm within them. The bark was some way upstream from the general throng of shipping, apart, and, as Hall had thought, the more safe for that, for his calculations had taken no count of an enemy who might come from anywhere but the town. He had never dreamed of the silent band which had been yielded up by the misty stretches of the basin. James leaned over the vessel's side towards the venture, and thought of Captain Hall. He had seen him in a tavern of the town, and had been as little impressed by his looks as was Flemington. He had noticed the uncertain eye, the restless fingers, the trotting gait, and had held him lightly as a force, for he knew as well as most men know who have knocked about this world that character, none other, is the hammer that drives home every nail into the framework of achievement. But he had no time to spend in speculations, for his interest was centred in the ferry-boat that was now slipping noiselessly towards them on the current, guided downstream by a couple of soldiers who had unmoored her. As she reached the bark, a rope was tossed down to her, and she was made fast. The stolen guns were hauled from their storage, and a six-pounder lowered, with its ammunition, into the great tub that scarcely heaved on the slow swirl of the river, and whilst the work was going on, Ferrier and James stepped ashore to the quay, and walked each a short way along it, watching for any movement or for the chance of surprise. And there was nothing, only from far out beyond the shipping, a soft rush, so low that it seemed to be part of the atmosphere itself, told them that the tide was on the turn. In the enshrouding night the boat was loaded, and a dozen or so of the little company pushed off with their spoil. Ferrier went with them, and Logie, who was to follow with a second gun, watched the craft making her way into obscurity, like some slow black river monster pushing blindly out into space. 
the scheme he had been putting together since the arrival of the venture was taking reality at last and though he could stand with folded arms on the bulwark looking calmly at the departing boat the fire in his heart burned hot custom had inured him to risks of every kind and if his keenness of enterprise was the same as it had been in youth the excitement of youth had evaporated it was the depths that stirred in loki seldom the surface like archie flemington he loved life but he loved it differently flemington loved it consciously joyously pictorially and james loved it desperately so desperately that his spirit had survived the shock which had robbed it of its glory for him he was like a faithful lover whose mistress has been scarred by smallpox he could throw himself heart and soul into the steward cause its details and necessities all that his support of it entailed upon him because it had so to speak given him his second wind in the race of life though he was an adventurer by nature he differed from the average adventurer in that he sought nothing for himself he did not conform to the average adventuring type he was too overwhelmingly masculine to be a dangler about women though since the shipwreck of his youth he had more than once followed in the train of some complacent goddess and had reaped all the benefits of her notice he was no snatcher at casual advantages but a man to whom service in any interest meant solid effort and unsparing sacrifice also he was one who seldom looked back he had done so once lately and the act had shaken him to the heart perhaps he would do so oftener when he had wrought out the permanent need of action that lay at the foundation of his nature when the boat had come back silent on the outflowing river and had taken her second load he lowered himself into the stern as her head was pulled round again towards Inchbrayok. The scheme fashioned by the two men for the capture of the vessel depended for its success on their possession of this island. As soon as they should land on it, they were to entrench the two guns, one on its southeastern side, as near to the venture as possible, and the other on its northern shore, facing the keys. By this means, the small party would command not only the ship, but the whole breadth of the river and its landing-places, and would be able to stop communication between Captain Hall and the town. Heavy undergrowth covered a fair portion of Finch Breog, and the only buildings upon it, if buildings they could be called, were the walls of an old graveyard, and the stones and crosses they encircled. Though the island lay at a convenient part of the strait, no bridge connected it with Montrose, and those who wished to cross the Esk at that point were obliged to use the ferry. The channel dividing its southern shore from the mainland being comparatively narrow, a row of gigantic stepping-stones carried wayfarers dry-shod across its bed, for at low tide there was a mere streak of water curling serpent-wise through the mud. When the guns were got safely into position on the island, it was decided that Ferrier was to return to the bark and take the remaining four-pounders with all despatch to a piece of rising ground called Dial Hill that overlooked the mass of shipping opposite Ferryden. He did not expect to meet with much opposition, should news of his action be carried to the town, for its main sympathies were with his side, and the force on the government vessel would be prevented from coming over the strait to oppose him until he was settled on his eminence by the powerful dissuaders he had left behind him on Inchbrayok. He was to begin firing from Dial Hill at dawn, and James, who was near enough to the venture to see any movement that might take place on her, was to be ready with his fire and with a small party of marksmen to check any offensive force dispatched from the ship to the quays. 
Hall would thus be cut off from the town by the fire on Inspreok, on the one hand, and, should he attempt a landing nearer to the watermouth, by the guns on Dial Hill, on the other. James had placed himself advantageously. The thicket of elder and thorn, which had engulfed one end of the burial ground, made excellent concealment, and in front of him was the solid wall, through a gap in which he had turned the muzzle of his six-pounder. He sat on the stump of a thorn-tree, his head in his hands, waiting, as he knew he would have to wait for some while yet, till the first round from Dial Hill should be the signal for his own attack. The moon had made her journey by this hour, and while she had been caught in her course through the zenith, in the web of cloud and mist that thickened the sky, she was now descending towards her rest through a clear stretch. She swung, as though suspended above the basin, tilted on her back, and a little yellower as she neared the earth, a dying, witch-like thing, halfway through her second quarter. James, looking up, could see her between the arms of the crosses and the leaning stones. The strangeness of the place arrested his thoughts and turned them into unusual tracks, for, though far from being an unimaginative man, he was little given to deliberate contemplation. The distant inland water under the lighted half-disc was pale, and a faintness seemed to lie upon the earth in this hour between night and morning. His thoughts went to the only dwellers on Inchbreok, those who were lying under his feet, seamen, for the most part, and fisherfolk, who had known the fury of the North Sea that was now beginning to crawl in and to surround them in their little township with its insidious arms, encircling in death the bodies that had escaped it in life. Some of them had been far afield, farther than he had ever been, in spite of all his campaigns, but they had come in over the bar to lie here in the jaws of the outflowing river by their native town. He wondered whether he should do the same. Times were so uncertain now that he might well take the road into the world again. And the question of where his bones should lie was a matter of no great interest to him, and though there was a vague restfulness in the notion of coming at last to the slopes and shadows of Balnillo, he knew that the wideness of the world was his natural home. And then he thought of Bergen und Zoom. After a while he raised his head again, roused, not by the streak of light that was growing upon the east, but by a shot that shattered the silence and sent the echoes rolling out from Dial Hill. End of chapter 11